I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the green notebook of retired Air Force Lieutenant General Scott Howe. Lieutenant General Howe spent over three decades in the military and was the first Air Force commander of Joint Special Operations Command. In this episode, he shares his experience leading organizations, and we spent a lot of time discussing the importance of chemistry and communication. Now, this episode is full of lessons that will help leaders navigate the challenges that come with leading an organization, whether it's a small team or, or several thousand members. So please welcome to the show, Lieutenant General Scott Howe. Hey, Joe. Thanks. It's, uh, it's great to see you again, and uh, I look forward to the conversation here. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it too, sir. For those listening, we almost accidentally did this podcast for the last 40 minutes before I even hit the record button. Just because the conversation was flowing. And so it just occurred to me about a minute ago that I should probably be recording this. So this is going to be a, this is a really exciting episode. I, I had the opportunity to watch Lieutenant General Howell in action when he was uh, the commander of Joint Special Operations Command. And so there's a lot of lessons that I learned from him personally that I, I think we're going to get into. But before we do that, could you please tell us a little bit about your background in the Air Force? Thanks, Joe. So I... Went to the Air Force Academy. Coming out of the Air Force Academy, I really wanted to go to helicopter training, which was not the reason they have the Air Force Academy. So I was counseled by some uh, leadership there. It's probably not the direction you want to go. But every summer, they used to send us off to an Air Force base to kind of experience what's like in the real Air Force. And I was fortunate one summer to spend uh, three weeks at Herbert Field, Florida, at the headquarters of Air Force Special Operations Command. And I was immediately taken by it. Got to fly on a lot of the aircraft they had there, and it kind of came waste. And then helicopters is what I want to do. So I was very fortunate to get a slot in helicopter training. Went to Fort Rucker and trained with all my Army colleagues. And then uh, had one assignment to rescue, and then had a unique opportunity. At that point, the Air Force had a glut of helicopter pilots. We were anticipating buying a bunch of Blackhawks that didn't materialize. 
And so they called the army up and said, hey, would you like to take 50 helicopter pilots, 50 lieutenants for a couple of years and just use them? I was fortunate. I went to Fort Hood, Texas in the 2nd Armored Division. And this was in December of 89. And about seven months later, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and the 1st Cab Division there on Fort Hood was deploying. And so uh, I was able to join the 1st Cab Division, deploy for eight months with the 1st Cab Division, Desert Storm, Desert Shield. And then coming back from that, I ended up in Air Force Special Operations Command flying MH-53s. And so I spent the vast majority of my career in the special operations community. One of the formative assignments or jobs that I had there at uh, an Air Force Special Operations Command was to be an, a liaison officer to the Ranger Regiment. Um, we had liaison officers to all the different, our customers, the folks that we carried around the back of a helicopter. And I ended up being the LNO of the Ranger Regiment for about a year and a half or two years in the early 90s. And uh, that was a formative assignment for me. When I was able to spend time with my colleagues who were in the Ranger Regiment, I immediately recognized I need to raise my game. These guys are good. And that was uh, very, very professionally rewarding for me. And then after that, like the rest is, is history, so to speak. Well, so yes, uh, a couple of, of staff tours, things like that. And I had my you know, squadron command at MH-53 Squadron at Herbert Field. Uh, interesting, in my two years in command there, we never had the squadron together. We always had a piece of the squadron deployed the, the entire time. So we're bouncing back and forth between Iraq and, and home that the whole period of there. Went to the Joint Special Operations Command, served under Vice Admiral Craven, then Vice Admiral Craven. He commanded JSOC. After I left there, I went to SOCOM, worked for Admiral Olson for a year, the commander, and then Admiral McRaven, his first year in command, which was great. And then I got to deploy with uh, General Tony Thomas to stand up the first SOGIP, the first Special Operations Joint Task Force Afghanistan, which is a, a great experience. Came back from there, spent two years in the Pentagon as the Deputy Director for Special Operations Counterterrorism, and then uh, Went from there for a, a short stint at Air Force Special Operations Command, then back over to Afghanistan to serve as the commander of the Special Operations Joint Task Force, and then uh, served as the vice commander of U.S. Special Operations Command in the Pentagon, working the organized, trained, and equipped side of things and budgeting, and then uh, selected to command the Joint Special Operations Command, and uh, served three years there and retired there this summer in 21. I was trying to do the the math on a napkin here to, to figure out how many years you had in the Air Force. And the thing I just kept getting stuck at was wondering if you got my card that I made on construction paper in fourth grade uh, when you were deployed in support of Desert Storm. <laughs> <laughs> I probably did. <laughs> you know, like multiple decades, uh, you, you were in service. And I'm curious, like you just retired. And so I would imagine that over that time, you start building up an identity as an Air Force officer, as you know, somebody who operates in special operations circles, and, and now you're retired. How does that feel right now, making that transition? It's going well. I mean, it's, a, it's a, you know, we like to say we kind of drop us in, an, in a new operating environment. We kind of sort it out. That's what I'm doing now. I'm in a new operating environment. I'm kind of figuring it out and triangulating and learning, learning the environment and, uh, and adjusting from there. So it's just like any other uh, new assignment, I would say. And then... I'm curious, were there lessons you learned later on, like as you got older, got more mature in the military that you kind of wish that you, if you could go back and, and do again, or, you know, wish you would have learned much sooner in your career? The one, I think I did okay at this, but if I would have spent more time on it looking back is the power of relationships. I mean, like I mentioned, I was a liaison officer to the Ranger Regiment. So all the captains I were serving with there were guys like, Captain's name, Eric Carrilla. Captain's name, Charlie Flynn. Captain's name, Paula Camera. 
folks like that, Jeff Bannister, Rich Clark, that I grew up with, and even those who didn't come back to the Ranger Regiment went off and did great things in the Army. And it was um, very nice to walk into a room somewhere in Iraq or Afghanistan, and I'm the only Air Force guy walking in, and I know a bunch of the guys there in the room. So that was a huge deal. So, you know, I would advise young folks to get out of their comfort zone. You know, we were in the Air Force, we're airframe centric. You kind of, your identity revolves around your airframe a little bit, but kind of get out there and meet more folks that fly other airframes and meet more of the the people you're supporting out there because there's a whole lot of interesting perspectives out there and you're going to see them again. I really appreciate you bringing that up. You know, I just recently interviewed Scott O'Neill. He just, I guess, retired, stepped down from, uh, being the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers. And he said the exact same thing. He said that he remembers coming up in the sports industry and you know making friendships with all these guys at the lower levels of the organization. And he said, you know, once he was a president of Madison Square Garden, CEO of the 76ers, you know, he was able to look across and it was those same group of people that were also running the other sports organizations, whether it be in the NBA or some other you know, professional sports arena. And so I think that's so important too. And I, I'm seeing it now in my own career. I'm, I'm approaching 20 years. And uh, you know, as the pyramid gets smaller, you know, I, I'm starting to see the this, this same, same folks over and over again as I'm moving up in the assignments. Now, that's a great point because as the pyramid gets smaller, there's less of you out there. In my last trip to the Pentagon, I was a commander of, of, of JSOC still. I kind of linked up with a couple of a few classmates of mine. So there were four of us still in the Air Force at the time, and uh, three of us had coffee together for who were Air Force Academy classmates of mine, all, all three stars, and you know, kind of had the opportunity to get together again. But it's, it's uh, you need to get to know your peers out there because they're, they're a bunch of great folks, first of all, and it's, you can learn a lot from them. I've noticed, too, in the last couple of years, I just keep seeing the same people over and over again. I think we made a joke one time. It's like everybody's on a professional pub crawl together. And it's the same people just going to different bars. That's exactly right. <laughs> I want to talk, you talk about people. And one of the things that I was able to do is, is watch how you approached culture in a large organization. So I was just curious if you could share your thoughts on that. When you're you know, taking over a very large organization like JSOC, like, what is your approach to culture? Well, any unit, no matter what the size, you're going to have a culture. You better spend some time shaping it and thinking about it because you may not get the culture you want unless you're deliberate about it. I'll never forget, it was early in my command tour at JSOC. We had an all-hands call, and I made a comment about this will be a values-driven organization. Um, you know, We're going to do things the right way. And I got a note from one, one of my senior civilians afterwards who goes, hey, sir, I heard your comment there. He goes, what values are you talking about? And I'm like, great question. So we did some thinking about it. I think you were involved in this. We kind of started brainstorming what some of the values of the Joint Special Operations Command could be. And we spent several months talking to lots of groups and uh, people in the command to try to identify that and get buy-in for those values and the culture piece. So, you know, the, the values we came up with were professionalism, empowerment, innovation, and commitment. That kind of helps, you know, define your culture as well. You know, JSOC had a culture before. What you want to do is leave things better than you found them. But every unit you have has a culture. You know, anytime I'm going to a new unit, I'm talking to people who were there before, kind of learning, you know, what can I expect when I get there? And uh, it's worth an investment in your time. I remember that. And I was actually trying to look around for my notebook because I actually carry that. I still carry that around with me right now. The Who We Are pamphlet that define the values of the organization. And, uh, you know, one of the ones that stands out in my mind is that our people are empowered to solve problems. And I love that because it was 
reminding all of us, and no matter where you're at in the organization, like you're not just going to be a bystander. If you see something, you know, messed up, like you're going to, you're going to solve it and you're going to have the backing of the leadership. And that's, that's just something that stayed with me. And I, I've learned from that document, like having a document like that is an important reminder to the people of the organization, like who we are. And uh, General Donahue, he said the same thing when he came on the podcast in the 82nd. He has a similar document. And he's constantly reminding people of that. And a follow-up to that is, how important is it just to get beyond printing a document, but to have those conversations to remind people about those values? That's a great point. I mean, the, the document doesn't mean anything unless you're executing it. So you, you mentioned empowerment. Empowerment should be liberating to the folks to be able to do their jobs. There's also a sense of responsibility there. You know, as I always said, I'm, I'm making decisions day to day based on all the information I'm getting. And so if you're hearing me talk in a VTC or some point, and you know, you know that I'm missing something, I'm, there's a piece of information I don't have, you're duty bound to key the mic and let me know what I'm missing. This is about making, a, you know, making the command succeed. Another point I would make to new folks in the command is, hey, if you're going to make mistakes here, make them because you're being active, not because you're sitting on your heels. If you make them because you're being active, we're going to pat you on the back and we'll make things better. But if you're sitting on your heels and not showing initiative, then, you know, we're going to have a harder time. So I think, you know, General Donahue said it in his discussion with you, it takes reps. You have to get out there and you have to exercise it. And it takes time. But you have to keep hitting on those those same the, the themes that are important to you to make sure it sinks in across your organization. Another thing that, sir, I, as I look back on my time, like your job as the JSOC commander, I don't think people appreciated what a work week looked like for you. I just remember like you were on 24-7. Like I don't think there were any days off for you. One of the things that I was always curious about, and you talked a lot about, was energy management and the importance of that for leaders in an organization. I first started thinking about this seriously when I was a one-star going through the capstone course. And General Votel, who at that point was the JSOC commander, flew down to Tampa. Well, we were at SOCOM headquarters to talk to all the new one-stars. So capstone is for all the new one-stars across all the services and uh, some of the senior executive service and some, some allies to kind of a little once around the world of uh, being a general officer. And uh, General Votel said, you know, you've got to find a pace you can sustain over time because, you know, for folks to make a general or flag officer requires two decades plus of pretty high pace effort. But we don't want you to slow down once you make flag officer. You know, I want, I want you to keeping that same pace for the next seven or eight years. Every person has to figure out what that is for him. But pacing was a, something that General Votel mentioned. And I tried to take that into account and not smoke myself because, you know, with a, with a couple, a couple of year long deployments in there, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to sustain for a year long and to find something that I could sustain over a long period of time. Yeah. So like, what were some of the things that you would do to get your energy back as a leader, especially when your time's so limited? Well, I'll tell you, one, I think you always need to be able to break away and do something that's not related to your job, whether it be reading a book, playing an instrument, doing something different. When I went to, to Afghanistan to command the Special Operations Joint Task Force there, you know, I told my staff, I'm not one of these guys who can get by on four hours of sleep a night for a year. I can do it for three or four days, but you're going to see my decisions probably deteriorate and you're going to see my mood deteriorate. And I'll get cranky. So I'm one of those guys that has to get a regular sleep. Also have to get to the gym regularly. I tried to make time for that. I tried to keep a battle rhythm that everyone could count on. When you're in, in combat, there are a million reasons to stay up to one or two o'clock every night and you can do it. But it was easier for me to, to say, okay, I'm leaving the office at this time. If something pops up, just wake me up. 
So I tried to maintain a pretty steady battle rhythm so that everybody could adjust off of that and know when they could get me. You know, that's one of the things I'm learning now is that like for the longest time, I just kind of powered through stuff. And I was like, this is the way that everybody else does this. This is the way I should do it too. But I'm realizing, yeah, we're all wired differently. And like for me personally, I do my best thinking early in the morning, but as the day goes on, it starts getting a little bit less (laughs) accurate and a little bit less precise. And so there's things that I've got to do throughout the day to kind of, kind of rebuild that, whether it's working out, whether it's taking a break for a little bit and then coming back to it. But I've realized the importance of that. And if I'm spending every week just falling and collapsing into the weekend, there's, I'm not sure that I'm doing it right. Yeah, you may not be happy either. After 20 years or so, that's going to have an effect. You want to sustain for the long term. And you're going to have a life after the military as well. So shifting gears a little bit, I, I'm starting to, you know, I'm thinking now back to the time we were together. You always talked about the importance of chemistry on teams. And, you know, I understand that you inherited me. And, uh, <laughs> and so it, it just worked out. But for you as a leader, like how important is the ability of the people on the team to work together? Vice, maybe selecting the person that's the right person for the job, maybe skill sets, um, like the superstar athlete, the superstar military stud versus, you know, somebody that's going to gel with the team. Yeah. So um, you heard me say it a lot of times at JSOC, chemistry matters. And a player that makes the team great is more valuable than a great player. I'd heard um, General Austin, he was at CENTCOM, said, you know, I'm trying to build a championship winning team here and not an all-star winning team. And that's different. Everybody has to know their role. They have to know when to subordinate their personal goals for the good of the team. Um, but being able to get along with your peers, I mean, you saw it there at the, in the command group at JSOC. You've got a tight group of eight to a, to a dozen folks there. And if you're not rowing in the same direction every day, then it's, we're not the best we can be. So sometimes what I would interview is, you know, I, I knew that the nominees had the requisite skills and requisite experience because I could see that in their records. But I just kind of wanted to get to know them, know what makes them tick and see what, you know, how they spend their time and how they communicate. And I've said many times, all of my best and worst decisions in my military career were personnel decisions. I've either hired the right people that maybe look like a genius or I've hired the wrong people. And it took an inordinate amount of time to kind of overwatch them or, you know, go through a removal process. So, you know, I would advise all the, all the leaders out there when you have the opportunity to spend your time wisely when picking your personnel. There's a part of me right now in the back of my mind that wants to ask the question now that you just said that is, do you feel like you've picked wisely, sir? Or do you, uh, do you well, have- like you said, I inherited you, Joe. <laughs> oh man, that's, that's totally getting edited out. Um, one of the other things that, you know, I would imagine it's really hard for senior leaders is the ability to think out loud. Because as you're trying to work through problems in your head or, or work it with the people around you, you've also got people who are just trying to please the boss and to make stuff happen. And so how do you kind of work through that tension of not thinking something and then just all of a sudden seeing the staff or seeing an organization spin because of it? Uh, great, great point, Joe. And you, you see that more the larger and larger organization that you're leading. You say something out there and all of a sudden the staff will take off in that direction. And you may not have meant that. And I learned it first, candidly, from Adam McRaven when I was uh, running his commander's action group at SOCOM. And so, you know, he had mentioned something in a meeting. And so we all got together and started moving out, had the staff moving out. We were briefing him the next morning on it. He goes, hey, stop. You guys have to give me some time to think out loud here. Just because I say something doesn't mean it's coming from the burning bush. 
And so, you know, I would I would try to be very deliberate about that because you can wrap your staff into knots when they think they're doing they're trying to please the boss when the boss may not be sure yet what he wants. And so you have to be able to have that discussion out loud, hear the pros and cons and hear people talk about it. But you have to be very clear when this is guidance and when we're just we're just iterating. That's a great point. And it reminds me of a, a story I read a while ago about Eisenhower and his son. And uh, like, like one day, I think Ike was when his Supreme Allied commander was just, you know, he was thinking out loud and he goes, I wonder, I wonder how John's doing. And then the next day, John was at the headquarters and they were both angry at each other. And Ike goes, what the hell are you doing here? And his, uh, his son goes, I was given orders to come. And then they quickly realized that, that a well-meaning staff officer had you know made that happen and and uh you know that was something votel said too on the podcast was the importance of being able to think out loud with a group of people and knowing it's a safe space yeah exactly right and another point on that one too i learned this i work i worked for general uh, john jumper who's chief of staff of the air force i was an assistant executive officer to him and so you see the parts of the staff who would come in and talk to him and then uh, after the meeting was over they would come out and they're all kind of comparing notes about what they heard and there may be a difference of opinion on, well, I think he said this, or I think he meant that, you know, and the, the lesson I learned from that was always go back in and ask the next question, give the guy some, some time, because again, you'll save your staff in an order amount of time. If you just, Hey, sir, one more thing. And so I would always encourage the, you know, the team there, is there anything else we need to ask or, or are you clear on the guidance? That's a really great point. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've done that. And just from a subordinate, like that doesn't feel comfortable is, uh, you know, like the boss explaining something and the boss thinks he's clear as day on, on the guidance he or she has given out. And then to have the courage, which, you know, sometimes I, I didn't do it all the time, but when I did and ask that question, like, let me, let me understand what you're actually looking for. But there's been a number of times when I did that and found out that I had heard something completely different from what was being asked. And in my experience, like I said, I first saw work with Joan Jumper, he always welcomed that. Hey, let me provide more clarity to you. But it's it's the courage, you said. You, you think that maybe their, their schedule's too busy and it's not worth going back in there and saying, hey, sir, I missed something here. But it's always worth it. You know, there's another thing, too, that, that I've learned is the importance of iterating on ideas. And so a lot of times, too, I, I've watched with staffs is they will uh, they'll not ask the question at the end. They'll run out of the room with the guidance that was given and spend, you know, 24, 48 hours creating something that completely doesn't look like what was in, in the leader's mind when, uh, you know, just having a minimum viable product to show just to do asthma checks along the way would have saved so many people a lot of heartache and saved some time in the process. Exactly. Well, sir, as I continue to think back on some of the lessons that I learned from you, and another one was... Uh, that you always talked about was the, uh, the importance of relationships. You talked about in your team, but also across organizations, our higher headquarters, headquarters to the left and to the right of us. But it goes beyond the organizational chart. So could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, it's a key point I like to highlight with the people that I'm able to chat with. And my, my bullet statement is all org charts have faces. You know, we in the military love our org charts and see what the chain of command looks like and see who's in each each J directorate. But every one of those has a face in it. And that person has a personality. They have biases. They have experiences. They have things they're trying to accomplish in that job. 
And you need to understand that. It's, it's again, it's about learning the environment. Spending time learning the friendly environment can sometimes bring a lot more value than anything else you can do. And as you find sometimes, and then you'll, you'll get to learn that, understand each person um, in that org chart. And the next year, a whole new team comes on board. So it's a constant iteration and learning and understanding the people who are in those jobs and how you can best uh, reach a shared visualization of the right way forward. Which leads us into communication. And so, you know, what, what were some of the things that you learned about communication being a, a senior military leader? I think I probably learned the most about communication up, and I'll say this communication up and out. When I was on the joint staff in the as the deputy director for special operations and counterterrorism. So that was the first time that every day I was across the river having meetings in the interagency. And again, they all have their own cultures and the way they talk and the, the way they communicate things. And I was talking to many, many more civilians than I were, was military officers. And, you know, I find sometimes we don't communicate very well up and out. We throw acronyms around and assume that everyone knows what they mean. Um, and sometimes we don't know what they mean. We just kind of used to throwing them around. So kind of slowing down and breaking it down into plain English that, you know, something my, my dad and mom would understand. Um, is is valuable. So that was probably the the most formative experience for me on learning how to communicate up and out was my time on the joint staff. Yeah. And what about communication frequency as well? You know, that's something I I think about because, you know, as a subordinate commander, like I I don't want to bother, or at least in my mind, I don't want to bother my higher headquarters, the the commander I'm working for. But I guess like, is there a balance or, or how would you, how would you recommend approaching that? You need to maintain a tempo of it. And like you said, you don't want to take up your, your boss's time, but you can't just wait until the significant bad event to make the call. You have to spend some time. And so they need to learn how you communicate. And the more you talk to them, you'll understand what their perspectives are, what their values are. So, you know, I'm a big fan in maintaining a tempo of these conversations with all your various higher headquarters or your peer headquarters to understand what's important to them. And so that, that, that is uh, something that's well worth the effort as well. Hey folks, it's Joe here, and I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you are looking for an education, this is the place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army1 and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. I right, sir, speaking of communication, you mentioned communication with hire. How did you handle it when you were getting pressure from your hire headquarters? How did you avoid pushing that down to the staff? Great question. And it wasn't just, you know, hire headquarters from us too. You always want to be concerned about your your headquarters pushing down to lower as well. My approach was to give all the subordinate units room to work and provide protective umbrella above them, kind of passing the intent and give them what they need and go. But, you know, all staffs try to support their commander, try to protect equities. But sometimes those day-to-day movements they make, they think they're protecting equities. 
but they may not be. So whenever I would see, you know, the pressure getting too high, the easiest way to sort through that is to have a commander to commander call. And you'd find out that it's probably not as bad as the staffs made it out to be. They're not executing the commander's uh, vision exactly as he intended. So that was the best way for me was to get that green tab to green tab call, figure out exactly what my higher headquarters was looking at, what they wanted, and kind of then eliminate that extraneous stuff. And then quickly, you know, we were pretty fortunate at JSOC. We were pretty flat and I could have a quick call with our key staff or commanders and, and pass on exactly what was happening. That allowed them to go back at their higher headquarters counterparts too and say, hey, General Howes, just talk to the commander. You know, here's what they discussed. We'll make sure you're tracking the same. But, you know, when you have staff, staff should have exactly the right amount of personnel and resources to macromanage, but not enough to micromanage and kind of finding that balance is a key piece. That's a really great point. And I know that one of the skills I've continued to try to work on throughout my career, especially when I've served on staffs, is knowing when a decision is a commander to commander phone call and knowing when it's uh, something that we can make at the staff level and be very, very careful of not making one of those commander to commander decisions. That's exactly right. So, sir, moving on, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you was that as I was thinking about your time in JSOC, one of the things that came to mind was I rarely saw you walk into a meeting without your senior enlisted advisor. He was always at your side. And so I I felt like just from an outside observer that, that you had a really good relationship with yours. So what advice would you give to a new commander who's, you know, going to be entering into that relationship where they do have a senior enlisted advisor? Great question and a great point. And I had two great command sergeants major, one in DJ Blake and one in Craig Bishop following him, just a ton of experience in, uh, inside our community. And as I've said frequently, that's the most important relationship I had in the command, relationship between me and the command sergeant major. And you noted it. There was rarely a meeting I had in D.C., overseas, internally with higher headquarters that my command sergeant major wasn't there. You know, what they bring is one a perspective that I don't have, a set of experiences and a, and a communication and connection to a, a large part of the force that they cannot sustain day to day that I just don't get day to day. I'm talking to commanders. They're talking to their fellow sergeants major and, and the NCOs and soldiers and below them. And uh, they think of things that I wouldn't think of. And so that was a, always a huge credibility to me. Whenever we come into, into D.C., for example, and talk to hire, having a guy there with the on the ground experience and here's what it's going to look like on the ground. And then lastly, you know, a lot of the discussions we would have in some of these high level meetings were about if policy goes this way, we may do that. We're thinking about issuing this type of order. Having a guy there who said, all right, you say you want to do this, General Howell. Here's what it's going to look like to Lance Corporal Howell when we turn that into into policy. Having that perspective and understanding what it's going to look like on the ground was just completely invaluable to me. And, you know, I would for all the new commanders who are just getting into a, a command position where you have a senior enlisted advisor developing and nurturing and cultivating that relationship by time, getting to know the families and just hanging out is vitally valuable to uh, the unit. I mean, you want to have coherence across the whole command. That's the best way to have it. If there's, there was never a scene between me and my, my command sergeant major, and that was really valuable. You, know, you mentioned DJ Blake. And, and one of the things that I remember he would always say that I, I've just internalized was mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, you determine your proximity to the X. Just because you're back at a headquarters, you're not the person kicking down doors, doesn't mean that you're not playing a part in enabling that person on the ground. And so is always coming to work every day with a purpose so you can do the best job you can to support that person. That's just one of the things that from the first time I heard him say it, 
has just kind of stuck with me and it'll be a DJ Blakeism that I take with me for the rest of my career. Yeah, a lot of wise counsel there. So, you know, as I'm talking to commanders and others about what we might do, he's having the same kind of conversations with the, the other senior enlisted advisors and he can let them know what we're contemplating. They can kind of pass on their feedback to him. So it's a he's having a parallel conversation with his part with a part of the force that I'm not having. Yeah. As I'm looking, I've got about a thousand more questions that I want to ask, but I'm, I'm trying to be cognizant of uh, your time. So very early on in the interview, as you were talking about your career, you mentioned serving in Afghanistan and talking about working at NATO Special Operations Command headquarters there. What lessons do you have from uh, your experiences with NATO? Great question. So my, my first exposure to that was when I was the deputy for NSOC A under General Thomas, and then coming back, you know, a few years later as the commander. So working in NATO was tremendously rewarding and frustrating sometimes as well. NATO has been described as a a school bus with one steering wheel and 30 sets of brakes. And any one of the allies can tap the brakes at any time when they have a concern. You know, this is about building consensus. It's not about majority rule. You want to bring everyone along. And every, every nation in the alliance has a different view of the problem. You know, so in Afghanistan, for example, none of those other countries were attacked on 911. They all came because of Article 5 and to support the NATO alliance. Over time, some of those countries have had terrorist attacks on their soil, and there have been others that haven't had any attacks at all. So they they come into the into the war zone in Afghanistan with one their own policy limitations and policy goals, things they can and cannot do. They have caveats, and we had caveats as well. And so your job as a, being a NATO commander is to pull all that together and take the strengths of each uh, each of the allies and what they're bringing, and kind of you know build the best solution you can overall. But several of the conversations I had in Afghanistan were fascinating because we would be trying to do something quickly. And a hard thing is to do something quickly when you, when you want to get 30 nations on board. And so you have to know when do I press and ask for forgiveness later or when do I take the time to really build a consensus? And there was something we were trying to do back in 2013. And one of the French allies brought up a point. He goes, hey, you know, what are you trying to do here? I kind of talked him through it. He goes, that makes good sense. He goes, you know, why not share that with the alliance and get everybody's buy-in? And we were kind of under a time crutch. And um, I said, well, that's that's a great point, but we don't, we have a limited time and we need to get this done. His point back to me was, you know, everything we're doing right now, not all of it is about Afghanistan. This is about the strength and future of the alliance for the next challenge down the road. So everything you can do to build that goodwill and camaraderie and, and to bring the team together now will pay dividends for the next challenge for NATO. And that was, you know, that was a good advice. And so, you know, every time we had an issue, that was a question. Is this something we can take? back to the alliance and consider hold or do we need to kind of put push ahead? So that's a, that was always something to measure, but working in NATO was tremendously rewarding, just great servants from all of these nations, great NCOs and officers. And it was a real pleasure to serve alongside them. I enjoyed my time working alongside NATO as well in Afghanistan. And, you know, with From the Green Notebook, one of the coolest things about it is it's not just a, a U.S. green notebook, like all of our allies have a form of the Green Notebook. And what I've found over the years is that, you know, a lot of our contributors and a lot of our readers are from our NATO countries. And so it's always great to connect with them and have conversations. And and I like it even more when some of them are coming up on the net and sharing their ideas on the blog. So I've been very privileged to work alongside NATO these last couple of years. Yeah, a lot of talent, a lot of really, really smart folks. Well, sir, as, uh, as we wrap up our time today, one last question for you. You know, you're, you're a little bit removed now 
from the military a couple months. I, I don't see a full beard yet. <laughs> what uh, what do you want your legacy to be as as you look back on uh, on your long career in the uh, the Air Force? Thanks, Joe. Um, I think your your real legacy. A colleague of mine and others have said, you know, the first job of a leader is to develop more leaders. So what you want to see is those subordinates that work for you that you spent some time with, you want to see them continue to flourish. There's nothing more satisfying to me than getting a note or a text or a call or an email from a, a former team member or subordinate who is, is now a command sergeant major somewhere, is now on the command list and taking command. That's where I draw great pride. Personally, I'd like to think that I was looked at as a team player, you know, not coming in with an agenda and just trying to do the right thing that I was uh, transparent with all. Um, but I really think the real legacy are the the leaders you helped to develop and left behind. That's where uh, that's where the real rubber meets the road. Sir, you can count me count me in one of those. And I Thanks, appreci- <laughs> I appreciate the opportunities you gave me uh, a couple of years ago, and and then the opportunity now sitting down and and doing this interview and just sharing your lessons with me and and all the other uh, from the Green Notebook listeners. So uh, again, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely, Joe. Real pleasure to to be a part of the podcast. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world, You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out and our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud, there's dirt on my hands, strong like a tree, there's roots where I stand, oh I've been running from the Shoot me down soon